I still don't know if it's going to succeed. I'm one of those <laughs> people who constantly thinks every booking is my last one. That's just my, my husband keeps trying to break me out of that mindset. But so yes, was there ever a moment where you were sure this was going to succeed? No, I'm not even there yet. <laughs> but it's uh, it's going quite well in the sense that, for instance, this year went much better than last year, which went better than the previous year. So it's definitely building, and I can feel a sense now of people know me. I mean, I was actually walking down the street, and a woman looked at me. She goes, you're Alina from the videos. So I feel like, you know, people are seeing me. So th this year actually is the first one where I really feel it's taken on a life of its own. It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy course, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. Welcome to the Dreamer's Moment. We talk to people who are in the arena, chasing their dreams. Hi, my name is Alina Adams. I'm the author of the books Getting Into NYC Kindergarten and Getting Into NYC High School, as well as my website, nycschoolsecrets.com, which helps all parents know all of their school choices. Basically, when parents are trying to navigate this decision and get their kids, say, into kindergarten, um, what's, what are the decisions that they, they are uh, wrestling with that you help them with? I like to talk to parents about the must-haves, the nice-to-haves, and the deal-breakers. The fact is, in New York City, it's a completely different process than it is anywhere else. Yes, everyone has their local zoned school for kindergarten, but that school might be overcrowded and you might not even get into your own zone school. You have to apply to your own zone school. But then you also have unzoned schools, you have charter schools, you have gifted and talented programs, you have religious schools, you have private schools that are religious, you have private schools that are not religious. So I always say we have an embarrassment of riches in New York City, but navigating the system is extremely complex. There's multiple tracks, there's multiple ways to apply. As I said, you apply to zoned kindergartens different than you would for a gifted and talented program where your child has to actually get tested and achieve a certain score on the test before you can then apply to the program. Private schools have a different application program and process and so on and so on. So the first thing I do is I work with parents just to make sure that they know that they have options. This is a very big thing in New York City. We get so much press about how, you know, we're the most segregated school system in the country, and the only way that I feel is we can sort of get around that is if all parents first just know that they have options. 
So the first step is to inform people of their options. The second step is to explain to people what their options are. What's the difference between a general ed school and a general ed dual language program? What's the difference between general education and a gifted program? What's the difference between an accelerated gifted program versus an enriched gifted program? How do charter schools fit into it? What do private schools do? So that's the second step. And then the third step is I usually start speaking with parents. I ask them to tell me about their child. I ask them to tell me about their family. I ask them to tell me their ideal educational environment. If, you know, pie in the sky, if you can just describe the perfect school. So we start from those generalities, and then I ask questions. And sometimes I ask questions that parents hadn't even thought about. So that adds another layer to it. I always tell people there's no right or wrong answer. It's just the question I get all the time is, what's the best school? And my answer is, the best school is the school that's best for your child. So first we need to determine what that is. Then we need to take their wish list and line it up against existing schools and see what might be a good fit. I strongly urge people to apply as broadly as possible because your odds of getting in really vary. There are some schools that might have, you know, 1,000 applications for 45 places. So even though it is your dream school, you can't assume that you're going to get in. On the other hand, I always tell people it's not a scam. Somebody's going to get in. It might be you. You just have to really explore all of your options and make sure that all your T's are crossed and your I's are dotted so you have the best chance of getting into the school that you think would be right for you. And then, of course, a couple of years down the road, I hear from parents who, you know, what they thought their child needed at four is not what their child needed at nine. And then we have to look at other options, and then the process just starts all over again. Oh, my gosh. So, obviously, I think when people are thinking about this decision and trying to be proactive about it, they're thinking what's best for the child. But what about just, like, basic logistics, like how far away your school is? Yes. How much? Yeah. Does oh, that... yes. I'm, I'm a huge quality of life person, so location, location, location is a big part of it. On the other hand, I have families who, you know, might live – in the Bronx and think, that, think it's worthwhile to go down to the bottom of Manhattan or families who live at the bottom of Brooklyn and think it might be worthwhile to go up to the Upper East Side. As always, you know, choice is the word that's going to keep coming up again and again. It's their choice. You know, for some parents, like if they have, say, a pair of four-year-old twins, they might not want to be on a bus for 40 blocks in one direction. But for mm. other parents, the school is so worthwhile that they'll make any sacrifice. Again, it comes down to the personal choice and value values of the family. Hmm. Do you, can you think of any examples of, of, of a family where they, they travel an hour every morning or more just to get them to the right school? Well, keep in mind, this is New York City, and if the subway stalls, 10 blocks can be an hour. So there's always that. <laughs> but, right. you know, an hour is a bit much, but I definitely have people traveling in between boroughs. I have tons of people, say, from Queens coming into Manhattan. I have people from Brooklyn coming into Manhattan. I have people from Manhattan going to Brooklyn because they happen to think the school is the right fit. So there's all sorts of variations. Wow. Okay, so... You, you mentioned something earlier which piqued my interest, which is you got to choose between general education or charter or even try to figure out if your child is gifted in some way. How do you even know, for instance, if your child is a gifted child entering kindergarten? Isn't that kind of early to know? 
Oh, it's completely ridiculous. No, it's completely ridiculous. All studies will show that a child's IQ doesn't stabilize until 12, maybe 10 at the earliest. But that's irrelevant because New York City tests children at four years old. Oh, and then stops testing them at eight because after eight, no one in New York is either gifted or talented. So if you want to try to get your child into a gifted and talented program, you have to get them tested at four years old. There's, there's no way around it. So it's not a matter of knowing if your child is gifted. And remember, the way that the tests are used and the way that they're applied, all they're really testing is if your child is the child of college-educated parents who have read to them regularly. So let's, let's not worry about the label right now. But <laughs> the, fact, the fact is you have to get them ready for these tests. And the reason that I encourage parents to do it is because I'm a big advocate of more choices is better than fewer choices. The fact is the way that the gifted and talented program is set up in New York City, sometimes it's worth it, sometimes it's not. There are some parents, if they're zoned for an excellent general education elementary school, might not want to bother to travel 30 blocks to a gifted and talented program. On the other hand, there are parents who are zoned for some truly terrible elementary schools. For them, the gifted and talented program, regardless of how good it may be intrinsically, is still a value so that they can go to a school that they think would be a better fit for their child. So it's not a matter of knowing if your child is gifted. The test won't tell you one way or the other. It's just to put more options onto your plate so that parents can see what's available. And if they're completely averse to going to their local zone school, it gives them yet another option. Hmm. Okay. I mean, I didn't plan on asking so many questions about this, but I just, it makes me wonder about um, how much stress does that put on the child? Do you feel like the, they're pretty protected from that or are they feeling it because of these tests or... Well, you know, it really depends, and it depends how parents handle it. You know, one of the things that parents often ask me is, what do I tell my child that this thing is going to be? You know, because I'm taking my child to this place where they're going to have to go into a room with a total stranger. You know, right around the time you told children not to go places with strangers, and they have to go with a total stranger into a room and be peppered with questions, and it's a really surreal and odd experience. So I always tell parents, you know your child best. You know how to prepare them. For instance, you know, I have three kids of my own, and with my oldest one, he was, you know, he was a real people pleaser. So I told him that these are people who want to learn how much four-year-olds know. So if you could please help them out when they ask you questions, if you could try to give them the right answer because they want to find out how much four-year-olds know. And he was such a kid who wanted to please adults, so that was a good, um, that was a good option for him. For my second child, who was not a child who wanted to please adults, um, <laughs> but he was very scientifically minded, so I told him that these people are brain scientists, and if you give the wrong answer on purpose, they'll know. So that fascinated him. And with my daughter, I just told her she was going to go take a test to be a Jedi. So she put on her Yoda t-shirt. She was ready to go. And, you know, with some, with some kids, it's just it's not a stressful experience at all. They actually like it. I mean, it's a strange adult, but they're paying attention to them. You know, some kids love it. Some kids, it is a stressful experience for them, but parents really have to know their own child, and they have to know how to present it. The one thing I do tell them, actually two things that I tell them, one is don't tell your child you're going to go play some fun games, because then the minute the child is no longer having any fun, they say, I'm out of here. So you don't want them to think they're going to have fun. And the other thing is you don't want to promise them, oh, and as soon as we're done, we're going to go to the circus, because then what will they be thinking about the time? (laughs) 
the right. circus, and they'll just want to get this done as soon as possible. So those are my two main tips for parents who are taking their kids to get tested. Right. Um, I'm already um, uh, kind of forgetting what what you were writing before you did the school stuff, but when were you working for Corporate America? Um, I actually, I worked for Procter and Gamble Productions for many years um, on their two soap operas, As the World Turns and Guiding Light. I also worked for ABC Sports in their figure skating coverage. I worked when they tried to um, revamp All My Children and One Life to Live, another set of soap operas, to the web. I've worked for ABC. I've worked for Disney. So I worked for all these major, major corporations um, for the last, oh, I'd say 20 years. Okay, so you, you've really been doing what you've always dreamt of doing, which is writing, but when, when did you start to get the bug to just work for yourself? You know, it, it's actually after applying my own children, both to kindergarten and then my oldest to high school, I actually saw how convoluted, complicated, because I've just been talking about kindergarten now. You have no idea how complicated high school is in New York City. There is no such thing as a zoned high school, so everyone has to apply to every high school. And when I saw how difficult the process was, and when I saw how the Department of Ed was at best not helping, at worst actually hindering parents, I really wanted to help. And so I took my background, which was in writing, which was in television production, and I turned it, I sort of, I pivoted, you know, the famous word, I pivoted towards doing things that would help parents, because that really, I felt I was doing something useful. You know, I loved working in soap operas. I loved working in figure skating coverage. I loved the stuff that I did, but it's not like I could claim I was actually helping anyone do more than, you know, sort of kill an hour in the afternoon. <laughs> right. So... What I really wanted to do was I wanted to take the skills that I had and the knowledge that I had and um, help people with it. So what I did was I wrote my two books. I wrote Getting into NYC Kindergarten and Getting into NYC High School. I set up my website, which has all sorts of information that parents can use, including, oh, you like this, it's a calculator that parents can use to figure out the optimal date on which to have their child tested for gifted and talented because the date your child takes the test on matters. That's a whole other issue. Then I did, um, I did audio podcasts where I would interview other parents, but I would also interview teachers and heads of schools and people who can talk about philosophy of education. And then this year the podcast actually even turned into videos that do the same sort of thing. I interview experts on education. I interview people from different schools so they can tell parents all of the things that they have to offer. And, of course, I interview other parents because parents are often sometimes the best source for how you will feel about something when you hear how someone else has gone through it. So I took, you know, I don't even like to think of it as I don't even really change careers. I just went from working for, you know, as you said, a large corporate entity, whether it be Disney or Procter & Gamble, and then I took the skills that I had used for them, and now I'm using those same things to help parents. <laughs> okay, so it sounded like from what I had read, it, this kind of grew organically. First you had people coming to you for advice, and then you're doing workshops and your books, and yes. then pri pri private consultation. Did, was that just a plan, or did it just kind of happen? Um, you know what? I started, well, people came to me advice when I was just another parent, so I was still working um, it, um, full-time at the time. People just came to me. But then people said, well, can you come and speak to a group? 
And then nursery school started inviting me in. But then what would happen is I would do my presentation, which by that point had evolved into more or less a formal presentation, and people would come and they would take very diligent notes, and then they would go home and they would try to read their notes, and all it would say is, ah, move to Westchester. <laughs> so they realized they needed to speak to me personally, at which point I realized that there needs to be a little bit more. Also, I thought, well, you know what, if people are having trouble taking notes and keeping up, I'll do a book. So I took my presentation and I put it into book form. But then people still had questions about their own particular situation. Because the thing about New York City, though, is that um, something might be true for 99% of schools, but it isn't true for your school. So I, and I always warn people about this. And also anything that's true today may not be true tomorrow. Everything that I just told you about gifted and talented testing, the mayor may wake up in the morning and go, I don't like it, I'm going to change it. So that's also constantly ongoing. So what happened was I realized that there needs to be more than just a workshop, than just the book. I need to do private consults. And when I started doing private consults, I saw it taking off, and I saw how it was taking up the bulk of my time. So I said, you know what, I'm just going to focus on this, because going back to what I said earlier, I really felt like I was helping people rather than just you know, working and creating good stuff. And I keep stressing that I had an excellent time at Procter & Gamble and at other places, but this, I feel, is really helping people. Okay, so that's where you really felt it, that was the rewarding part of being an entrepreneur is the helping the people. Absolutely. And, again, if I want to get a little bigger than that, I also think that education is just so ridiculously important that not only am I helping parents find the best situation for them, I feel like I'm contributing to the entire education system as a whole, as it were, because we desperately need educated people, and it starts so early. Okay, so if uh, so, if you were um, writing for uh, companies as big as Disney and Procter and Gamble and so forth, and then uh, you you're making this leap into entrepreneurship and managing your own business, uh, was there a, a period where you know did, was it just successful right out of the gate, or was there a time where it was a struggle and you didn't know if it was going to succeed? Oh, I still don't know if it's going to succeed. I'm one of those people <laughs> who constantly thinks every booking is my last one. That's just, <laughs> My husband keeps trying to break me out of that mindset, but so, yes, was there ever a moment where you were sure this was going to succeed? No, I'm not even there yet. But <laughs> it's, uh, it's going quite well in the sense that, for instance, this year went much better than last year, which went better than the previous year. So it's definitely building, and I can feel a sense now of people know me. I mean, I was actually walking down the street, and a woman looked at me, and she goes, you're Alina from the videos. So mm. I feel like wow. you know, people are seeing me. So th this yeah. year, actually, is the first one where I really feel it's taken on a life of its own because I'm getting referrals at a much greater rate than I have in the past. In the past, you know, I did promotions and I did my workshop and things were going, but this is the first year where a good number of people have come in via referrals, which makes me think that the previous people were happy with my services and now they're coming in. So I never feel sure that it's going to be success, but I do feel like this year I've hit a bit of a tipping point. Okay. All right. I think it's all right to have a little pessimism, you know, it keeps us, <laughs> keeps us going, you know. Yeah. Um, so uh, one question I had, I forgot to ask was, how, in your business, I'm assuming there's a peak time of the year when everybody, like in the summer sometime, everybody's coming for your, your help. Is that, how do you manage you know, that? It's, it's a, that's an excellent question. 
in theory, the peak should be in the spring because if people want to get their children ready for admissions in the fall, and keep in mind, I'm talking the year before. The people who I'm working with in fall of 2017 right now are applying for fall of 2018. So you have to do it a year advance. I think the biggest peak should actually be in the spring because people should come to me in the spring to find out what they need to do, how they need to prepare, use the summer to prepare, and then hit the ground running in the fall. Unfortunately, I have not yet been able to get that message out there as broadly as I would like, and the majority of people are still coming to me in the fall, which for some schools, it's almost too late. You're going to have to be scrambling to get your materials together. So I can tell you that my busiest season by far, bar none, is September, October, November, December, January. But I wish people, for their own good, not for mine, would get started earlier and in March, April, and May actually start coming to me so that we can put together a nice, solid game plan, and then they have the whole summer to prepare for it. Right. That makes sense. Uh, my wife has always been very on the ball in that regard, so I haven't had to worry about that so much. Lucky so, you. I'm sorry. I said, "Lucky you." Yeah, I know. I'm very <laughs> lucky. <laughs> how about contrast how life was before working for these big companies and now? What are some of the benefits that you you see from working from yourself? Other than you mentioned the rewarding part of it, but um, right, you want to hear tangible, nitty gritty things. Well, sure. Sometimes if I'm doing phone conferences, I don't have to wear pants. That's a good one. Uh, you know, somehow Procter & Gamble Disney were a very pro-pants company. So there's, there's that. I do make my own schedule in the sense that, you know, I have kids, and sometimes I need to pick up kids from school and take them to an activity. Well, my time is my own, so I can schedule around that. So that's obviously a huge difference from working for a company where your time is never exactly your own. On the other hand, when you work for a large company and you go on vacation – they pay for that. When mm -hmm. you work for yourself and you go on vacation, there is no money coming in. So <laughs> that definitely has an issue also, you know, because I take the time off maybe in the afternoon to pick up my kids and take them to an activity. Well, I've got emails to return, so I'm doing mm -hmm. them in the evening or I'm doing them first thing in the morning. So it's my time is my own, but my time is my own also in the sense that I'm completely responsible for it. You know, if you're sitting in a corporate office and you take an hour off for lunch, that's their hour. When I take an hour off for lunch now, that's my hour. Right, right. Well, um, I, I still, I think, I think you're still saying uh, it's it's all worth it, um, or you oh, wouldn't absolutely. have done it. Yeah. yeah, I wouldn't do it if it wasn't worth it. As I said, it just takes more juggling. It takes more remembering that to be cognizant of all sorts of details. But it's absolutely better, not just the fact that I feel I'm doing more rewarding work, but as I said, it's my own time. I can set my own schedules. If I do want to close shop for two weeks over winter break, then I can do it, and there's nobody to say, well, you can't take that many days off. So the decisions are mine, and, of course, all the mistakes are mine, too. You've also, like, you kind of hinted to it here, but you've authored a, at least a dozen other books, am I, am I right? I have. I have. And because I used to work for ABC Sports, um, in their figure skating department, I actually have a series of figure skating myst murder mysteries out that came out through Berkeley Prime Crime, but now they're enhanced ebooks, 
which is also talk about another aspect where I brought my production background into it. Now I have these books, and they actually have videos within the books of skaters. So rather than trying to describe skating, you can actually see that. Um, also, because I worked on soaps, I wrote some soap opera tie-ins, including two New York Times bestsellers. I've written books about soaps, and I've also written romance novels because my background is in soaps. So that was I. I my husband thinks I work too much, but I've always had several. I've always had several jobs. Even when I was working corporate, I was writing books on the side. So the fact is, I I'm not very good at not doing things. <laughs> um, that was something that struck me early on. The way you talked about writing, it was like, oh, this is this is just not hard for you to do. Whereas most people, like myself, um, have this dream to someday write at least one book. What do you What do you tell people who are dragging their feet and uh, they say they want to write, but they just never get around to it? Sit down, type one sentence, then see where that sentence leads. Then see where that sentence leads. Then maybe after about five pages, you have found what you're trying to write. Erase everything that went before it and go from there. But literally one sentence at a time. There are days when I still write now. There are, still, there are days when I just force myself to open the document and write down the most basic thing, like the air was cold. She walked to the door. Just anything to get your fingers moving and then see, well, what happens after that? Then what happens after that? And sometimes you, you stumble into what your point is, and then you can get rid of all the preamble. But my other piece of advice is, if you can live without writing, live without writing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> I've definitely tried. Yeah. <laughs> it, Not... You know what? It, 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 there's nothing pushing you to do it. It is so brutally hard, and the rewards are so incredibly small that I tell most people that, you know, your life is great the way it is. Don't worry about it. Exactly. That's a great point. I definitely got to include that. I worked with a screenwriter for a while on a on a uh, screenplay that I wanted to uh, do, and it didn't mm -hmm. work out, but it was actually kind of fun. Oh, yeah. Well, it's fun. It's, it's terrific. Writing is the one thing that if I need time to move quickly, um, I'll work on some of my own fiction, because that's the kind of thing that when I get into the zone, two hours can pass by in ten minutes. So, yes, it's awesome. It's fun. But if you can live without it, I guarantee you will. Yeah, yeah. No, I hear you. Well, so uh, finally, I'll ask you, what, what would you share with others who are in a day job like you once were and want to pursue their own dream, but um, uh, they, they are dragging their feet, like I've said, and what would you, what's, what's some insight you've learned having taken that step that um, maybe you wouldn't have learned otherwise? The most important thing I've learned is know who your audience is, figure out who your audience is, figure out where they are, and figure out how you can reach them. Because that was the main thing for me. I knew my audience existed. I knew parents in New York City were losing their minds trying to apply their kids to kindergarten or to middle school or to high school. But I had to reach them where they were. I do a lot of Facebook promotion. I do a lot of social media. I curate a mailing list. I speak at schools, preschools, community centers. So the most important thing that I would say is before you quit, before you even I, – honestly, I don't know the right way to do a business plan. I've never done a former business plan. I've never taken a course in doing a business plan. But I know that what worked for me was finding my audience, finding out what, what issues were important to them, and finding out the best way to reach them, those three things. And those are three things that can be done prior to quitting your day job. That's the kind of research that you can do in the evenings, in the early mornings, on the weekends, but just make sure that when you take the plunge, you know that the pool is not empty. There's water there. 
That that's great advice. That's very good. Um, where can people find you online? Where, where do you have us? Uh, where do you have people check? The best place to start is nycschoolsecrets.com. That has my videos, the podcast, multiple articles, and the calculator that I mentioned for figuring out when to get your child tested. So it's one-stop shopping. For people who are interested in my figure skating mysteries or in any of my soap opera books, that's a separate website. That's alinaadams.com. That one is for my fiction writing. nycschoolsecrets.com is for everything school. Next time on The Dreamer's Moment. I cannot fathom going back to working for somebody else, even though, you know, in many ways I do work for my clients. Being, having the freedom to be able to work from anywhere at any time on my own terms, I'm at the point where I can choose which clients and projects I'd like to take on. The Dreamer's Moment is part of the Life Podcast Network, a group of family-friendly podcasts bringing a positive message of hope and inspiration. Find us at lifepodcast.net.